Our sermon this morning is from Lamentations chapter 2. We started a sermon series a couple of weeks ago working through the book of Lamentations, and we pressed pause on it last week because we uh, sent out a devotional packet, uh, and so we worked from Psalm 23 last week. But we're going we're gonna to jump right back into Lamentations uh, chapter 2 this week. Uh, it's, you know, somewhat timely to be going through Lamentations in uh, a, a, a season of a pandemic in our country, right? Lamentations gives us language for, it gives us a category for lamenting and mourning when we are experiencing difficulty and hardship and, and suffering. And we certainly are in a time uh, like that. So ordinarily, I would um, tell you what, chap- what page number in our Pew Bible uh, the text is on, so that if you don't have your Bible, you can grab a pew Bible and read it. Uh, that's not the case this week, because instead of, uh, instead of sitting in, in a pew here in our church building, I imagine you're probably sitting at home, uh, more or less quarantined because of the coronavirus. So instead of preaching to a room full of people, I am more or less preaching to an empty room right now. Uh, we've, got, we've got a couple of guys here that are running our audio uh, video equipment, but really that's it. So... Full disclosure, uh, this sermon might not be as good uh, as maybe that maybe they are. I'm going to do we're going to do the best that we can with what we have. Uh, the whole art and science of public speaking is uh, uh, about this exchange of energy between the speaker and the the listener. Right on any given week, as I'm preaching a sermon, I am not only speaking and like preaching and giving words, but I'm also uh, subconsciously sometimes taking in information, right? I'm making eye contact with people in the room. I'm observing how they are receiving what I'm, I'm saying. And admittedly, our church uh, might not be the most verbal, right? We might not be the most expressive congregation that they're there. You'll probably hear a lot more amens and a lot more like preach it's if you go to another church than here at, at our church. Um, but nevertheless, there's still an exchange of energy that, that happens. I preach, you listen, I'm trying to make a point. Maybe I'm, uh, belaboring that point too long and I look out and there's all kinds of little visual cues that that's taking place, right? People will be checking their watch. People will, their eyelids will be getting heavy. They'll be falling asleep. People will get up and walk out of the room right in the middle of my sermon, um, you know, all of these have literally happened. I'm not making any of these, any of these up. So there's little visual cues that subtly communicate to the speaker. Hey, you've lost us. Like you're treading water, like cut your losses, move on. Right. Or maybe it's a blank stare. They, they don't understand what you just said. Say that sentence again. Uh, you said a big word, maybe define it in terms that they can, can understand. You know, not the least of which of these visual cues is, uh, you've gone too long. <laughs> Stop talking because we, our kids are crying. You know, the, the, we're, we're hungry. We want to go home and have lunch. So wrap this thing, this thing up. That, in fact, these visual cues, to be honest, are probably why I keep most of my sermons under an hour long. And so we don't have any visual cues today. So your guess is as good as mine how long this sermon is going to, is going to go. We kind of have a safety net because if you're at home listening to this, and the kid's crying or you get hungry, then you can just pause it and go attend to that, to that issue and, and, and come back. So um, we're probably going to go long, but I'm going to try my best to, to, keep, this, uh, to keep this short. Uh, the bottom line is we're all just trying to figure out this whole thing together, right? This is an unprecedented season for our country. It's an unprecedented season for our uh, church, like the church globally, but also for our little church individually. And so we're kind of just um, 
you know, building the plane while we fly it. And so this is our first attempt, and we hope that it serves you and that it encourages you. With all that in view, uh, Lamentations chapter 2, if you happen to have, if you happen to have taken home, which we encourage you to do, if you happen to have taken home a pew Bible at any point, you can find Lamentations chapter 2 on page 642 of your pew Bible. If you don't, if you're using your own Bible, then just open to the middle. Uh, you'll see books like uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah. Lamentations is immediately after Jeremiah. If you see Ezekiel, you've gone too far, go, go back. So it's, it's in between Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel is where Lamentations uh, is. And so uh, I'm going to read through uh, Lamentations chapter 2. It's, it's, kind of a, it's a long chapter, but uh, I'm going to read through, the, through it entirely because we understand God's Word to be central and primary and important. In fact, I would say if you, uh, if you only listen to five minutes of this sermon— Listen to the five minutes where I read God's word verbatim out of my Bible uh, and, and didn't skip everything else. Uh, I want to encourage you to resist the temptation to skip past the reading of God's word in order to hear uh, some other portion of the sermon. Instead, uh, just, just listen. Either, either listen and read along or, uh, or just listen and kind of let it uh, hit you and, and land on you and, and confront you. So let's read through Lamentations chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 22, and then we'll work our way through it. It reads, How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn them from his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe. He has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. He has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath in his fierce indignation. He has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar. He's disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies 
faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss. They gnash their teeth. They cry, we have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we longed for. Now we have it. We see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. The heart, their heart, cried out to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest. Give your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see. With whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet, should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie young and old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side, and on the day of the Lord, on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you are good, and your word is good. We thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to read your word. Even on a week like this where our uh, normal routine is, is disrupted and where uh, we are uh, unable to gather together physically, we still recognize your faithfulness, right? The, the reality is we, uh, we each own a Bible. And we have the ability, even if not in person, we have the ability to, to gather, um, you know, online and hear your words spoken to us. We thank you, um, for, for just, just blessing us with, um, the ability to, to gather and hear your word and worship and be encouraged by your word, even in, uh, strange circumstances like these. So we acknowledge that you're good and that you're faithful and we ask you to speak to us this morning through your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. 
All right, so if you'll remember back to Lamentations chapter 1, uh, the, the entire book of Lamentations is, is a lament. It's, it's a lamentation. It's, uh, the author witnesses a national tragedy. He witnesses the, the nation of Babylon come in and destroy the city of Jerusalem. And then the book of Lamentations is his diary. It's his kind of venting and, and verbally processing and just kind of putting to pen and paper what he feels in response to watching the city that he loves be destroyed. The people that he loves be, you know, taken captive and kind of ushered off into uh, into slavery. The the book is structured as five. It's five chapters, each of which is a poem. Uh, the first the first four chapters are are an acrostic, right? Meaning that every uh, chapter of the of the every verse of the chapter starts with a sequential letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. 22. Uh, verses in each chapter. In fact, depending on which translation you use, some of them actually have the Hebrew letter kind of uh, designating and kind of labeling each verse and kind of walks through through them. And so uh, chapter, chapter one, we studied a couple of weeks ago, the city of Jerusalem is pictured as a widow, right? She's mourning, she's weeping. She has, she has uh, turned away from the God who loved her and who invited her into a covenant relationship. She's turned away from him and she has pursued other gods and other lovers, but those other gods and those other lovers have deserted her. And so now she is despised and abandoned and rejected and in distress. That's the big idea of Lamentations chapter one is that Jerusalem has been, you know, forsaken by anyone and everyone. She forsook God and now she has been forsaken and abandoned and she is in distress. Chapter two, what we're looking at today builds on that and actually kind of uh, peels the curtain back a little bit and shows us a little bit of what is happening behind the scenes. And specifically, we're going to see um, th- that the Lord himself is sovereign over um, this suffering that Jerusalem is experiencing. He is, uh, in a very real sense, the one who is at the helm as it is all taking place. In verse 1, we read, "...how the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud." He, the Lord, cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He, the Lord, has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. So, so this is not some random act of violence. It's not, it's not as if uh, God is in heaven uh, wishing that this, this act of violence didn't happen and it happened against his will and he is uh, you know, not able to uh, save. He is not able to prevent it should he desire to, to do so. Right? The, the tendency might be to think, you read Lamentations chapter 1, or you experience suffering in your life, and the tendency might be to think, well, God doesn't like it any more than I do. God is, uh, you know, God is, is uh, as uh, shook up by this suffering that I'm experiencing as I am. There's no way that God would ever want me to suffer like I am suffering. So, so God must be uh, incapable of helping, right? God doesn't let, so, so this is the result. And so we'll, you know, this is the result of someone else's choices, someone else's actions, someone else's uh, free will. Our, our enemies are, are attacking us. And there is a sense in which, uh, you know, um, when, when we suffer, it does come at the hand of other people. It becomes, it's a result of their choices. It's a result of their decisions. Um, but uh, at, at the end of the day, um, our, when we suffer, God is sovereign over it. When we suffer, uh, it's not, it does, we don't suffer because God didn't want us to suffer and he is incapable of preventing it. 
We suffer because God is sovereign and God uh, allows suffering for his purposes to be, to be accomplished. Which is, which is a little bit tough to kind of wrap, wrap our minds around. In fact, we probably uh, spend the better part of our lives doing the exact opposite of what Limitations 2 is, is kind of is telling us, right? We spend, Limitations 2 is all about acknowledging the reality of suffering, acknowledging that I am suffering, acknowledging that my life is not what I want it to be, acknowledging that uh, I have these unfulfilled longings and unfulfilled desires and I am in distress, acknowledging that, and then recognizing that God is in fact sovereign over that, and those, those are two things that we find very difficult to do, right? Um, we, we find it very difficult to acknowledge the reality of suffering, right? And so we will, you know, the you know, prosperity theology will say, uh, just uh, speak it out of it, right? Uh, just like the power of positive thinking. So, so don't acknowledge suffering. Don't acknowledge pain. Think good thoughts, think happy thoughts, self-esteem. And eventually that will become your reality. Like fake it till you make it. Pretend that you're not suffering until you are in fact, no longer suffering. But that's not- so that's one way that we might deny that suffering exists is by, uh, you know, thinking positively and trying to, uh, delude ourselves into thinking that, uh, our lives are better than they really are. But another way is by trying to deceive other people and presenting to them that our lives are better than we really are. So we are, we, you know, we don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to tell people how we're really feeling. You go online to your uh, Facebook profile and you put this like perfectly staged, framed picture uh, of you and your family and everything is great in reality. Your life is not as great as you're trying to present that it is. This isn't a new phenomenon either. I looked through some old vacation uh, photos this week as I was thinking about this sermon. And every single one uh, of my family of five when I was a child, just everyone is like grinning, smiling ear to ear, right? Holding an ice cream cone, standing in front of a theme park, you know, about to go play golf, whatever, whatever it is, right? Mom, dad, three kids, everyone is smiling and grinning ear to ear on every picture that I could find uh, from our photo albums. And yet... In my brain, when I think back and remember uh, vacations from when I was a child, uh, I, don't, I don't think that we ever made it five miles away from the house before kids were screaming, there was fighting in the back seat, and my, my parents would turn around and threaten that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn this car around. Like, we're, none of us are going on vacation because we can't get along and we can't, you know, we, we can't uh, enjoy ourselves while, while we're here. So, so even, you know, even before technology, we have, this, we have this sense in which we want to present to other people, I'm happier than I really am. My life is better than it, re- than it really is. Uh, I want you to think think that I'm okay. I want you to think that everything is fine in my life and in my world. Lamentations blows that up. Lamentations says, don't uh, delude yourself into thinking your life is better than it really is. Don't deceive other people into thinking that your life is better than it really is. Just be honest. Be brutally honest with who you are, what you're experiencing, and what you're feeling. But then it takes a step further and says, now that you've acknowledged the reality of suffering in your life, acknowledge the sovereignty of God in it and over it. Look at the, look at the subject uh, in, the, in the following, in starting in verse 2, going on down. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, 
He has broken down the strongholds. He brought to the ground, brought down to the ground in dishonor, right? Uh, the, the author of Lamentations is saying our suffering is not the result of random acts of violence from our enemies. Our suffering isn't happening because some bad people made some bad choices. Our suffering is happening because our sovereign God is allowing it to happen and even willing it to happen. Verse 3, he has cut down, he has withdrawn, he has burned. Verse 4, he has bent his bow, he has killed, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has multiplied mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden. In his fierce indignation, he has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, and he has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. See the theme that the author is trying to get across? He's saying, be brutally honest with what you're experiencing and with the reality of suffering, and then... Uh, acknowledge the reality that God is the one who uh, makes it happen, right? God is the one who, um, when, when suffering comes, right, uh, it's, it's not uh, random acts that are happening and we're at the mercy of those acts and God is not capable of saving us or stopping it. When, when we're suffering, God is not in heaven wringing his hands, right, wishing that he could have stopped it. When we're suffering, God is ultimately behind it. God is the one who did it. Which, on the one hand, is is comforting, right? It's comforting to know that even in the worst times of my life, God is at the helm. God is in control. The universe is not spiraling out of control and God is unable to manage it. It's comforting to know that in the midst of the worst of suffering, God is still sovereign. But on the other hand, it's a little bit scary because, because now we have to wrestle with the question of why would God allow these kind if, if God is actually responsible for or sovereign over or making happen all of these bad things in my life, wh- why would he do that, right? Why would God allow suffering and death? Why would God allow someone to get Parkinson's disease? Why would God allow for uh, a terrible, life-threatening car accident to happen? Why would God allow for parents to abandon their children and leave them needing a home or leave them in a, a foster system that they will be... be lo- Why would God allow for violence and abuse against innocent victims? Why would God allow for a, a deadly virus pandemic to spread through our communities and claim the lives of thousands of people and massively disrupt the lives of nearly everyone, right? Causing businesses to close their doors, causing people to be out of work, throwing us into a state of panic where we can't live our lives in a, any semblance of, of normalcy. And if, if God is in control, if God is at the helm, then why would he allow these things? Why, why would he not prevent them or, or alleviate our suffering? And to be perfectly honest, Lamentations doesn't answer those questions. <laughs> Lamentations is very clear that suffering exists, and it's very clear that God is sovereign over suffering, and even God is the one who uh, you know, allows suffering to happen, and it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't answer the questions about why God would, would do that. We don't really know. When we read Lamentations, we don't really know why God does what he does. We don't know why he allows for the things that he has allowed. 
But we know that he's the one in control. We know that it is God's will that's being actualized. It's not our enemy's will that's being actualized. It's not just some cold, impersonal, you know, um, just just randomness that's being actualized. It's, it's God's sovereign will that is being actualized. We know that we're living in a world that was created by God, that is ruled by God, that God has made us in his image, and that God is in charge of what happens to us. Right? Good things in our life are gifts of grace from God, and difficult things in our life are from the sovereign and even loving hand of, of God. So in the first seven, seven verses, we see about the reality of suffering, and we see that God is uh, you know, sovereign over it and even responsible for it in some sense. And in verse uh, 8, we actually see uh, some more detail about the judgment of God, about the painful uh, discipline of, of God. See, see, one of the reasons why uh, the judgment of God, the discipline of God, and God allowing suffering seems so bad and, and off-putting and distasteful to us is because we are interpreting it. We're interpreting the, the judgment of God or the, the uh, vengeance of God in light of uh, human vengeance or, or uh, you know, human judgment, right? So, so a, a person, like if, if a person gets mad at someone else, usually it's because they lost their patience, they lost their temper, they flew off the handle and, and freaked freaked out, right? Raise their voice, verbally abusive, things like that, right? Usually it's because there's uh, an idol in my heart that was being threatened and it made me upset, or uh, there's, I didn't get my way and now I'm upset. But the reality is that God, uh, God's anger is, is qualitatively different than human anger. God's vengeance is qualitatively different than human vengeance. More often than not, Human vengeance and human anger is not good. It's not healthy. It's not holy. It's not godly, right? Imagine, imagine a, a human being. Imagine a, a king um, of a country, a, a head of a state, and read the verses in uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, uh, ascribing them to him. Imagine a human being ruling over a country uh, who does things like casts down his enemies, swallows them up without mercy, breaks down their strongholds, brings them down to the ground, cuts them down in fierce anger, burns them with a consuming fire, kills them, pours out his fury on them, and lays waste to them. These are the kinds of actions that are ascribed to God in Lamentations 2. And if you think of, of a human being uh, doing those kinds of actions, you're, you're, you're picturing someone like Hitler or Stalin or, or Chairman Mao, right? Right. It's vindictive, uh, megalomania, genocide. Uh, you know, a, a lunatic. And yet, that's that's exactly what is ascribed to God. The very behaviors that make for the worst possible human being, vengeance and anger, are the behaviors that are uh, ascribed to to God. And the reason is because God's anger, God's vengeance is qualitatively different than human anger and human vengeance, right? Humans get angry because you have something that I want, and so I'm going to hurt you and take it from you, right? Well, I want peace and quiet. My kids are bothering me, so I'm going to lose my temper and yell at them. I want... I want an open road to drive on. This guy in front of me is going too slow, so I'm going to get road rage and drive aggressively. Human anger, human vengeance, human wrath is, is uh, more often than not 
unholy and sinful. But God's wrath, God's vengeance, God's anger is not something that just arbitrarily happens when something, when, when, you know, an idol of his is threatened. God's vengeance and anger and wrath actually uh, is a function of who he is. It's baked into the very being of who God is. Look at verse 8. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. So, so this destruction that Jerusalem was experiencing had been, it wasn't arbitrary. It wasn't something that just happened off, you know, out of the blue because God lost his temper. It was planned. It was determined. It had been being planned for all of eternity. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. A measuring line is something that you use on the job site. To, to make preparations, to get ready for the work that you're about, re- uh, the saying, right? Measure, measure twice, cut once, right? So, so do, do the hard work, like over-prepare. Do all the hard work of preparing, planning, figure it out, map it out, plan it out, measure everything, then circle back, measure it again so that you uh, will only have to cut once. The, the inverse is also true. Measure once, cut twice, Right? If you cut corners during preparation, during the planning stages, if you don't put work in to measure, you're going to end up making mistakes. And they'll be costly because you're going to cut the materials in the wrong place. You're going to waste time and money. Measure twice, cut once. Measure once, cut twice. The measuring line is the planning stage. It's the preparation stage. Mapping, sketching out, drawing, measuring. And God says, When it comes to uh, visiting judgment on my people, visiting painful discipline on my people, I've measured it out beforehand. It's pre-planned. It's premeditated. I've thought it out. I determined to do it long ago before I ever did it. In fact, in verse 17, we see even more clarity. Verse 17, the Lord has done what he purposed. He carried out his word, which he commanded long ago in eternity past. He has thrown down without pity and made the enemy rejoice over the city of Jerusalem. God's judgment is something that he purposed to do long ago. His wrath and vengeance is something that has been, uh, it's not something that he arbitrarily arrived at in a moment. It's, it's a it's a function of who he is. This is another uh, kind of key qualitative difference between human vengeance, human anger, and divine vengeance and divine anger, right? Uh, when a human being gets angry or offended or upset, they are uh, observing a behavior of some kind or a circumstance of some kind, and they are judging that behavior or that circumstance against some, some standard. Some, some standard of morality, some standard of the way things should be, and they're mad, they're angry that whatever they're observing is not the way that it should be. But the, the catch is, like, the morality that we judge things by is external to us. It's not in us, right? If I see someone, if I, if I witness someone murder someone, that would offend me, that would upset me, that would make me angry, and, and rightfully so. But the reality is, Murder is wrong, and that had, like murder was wrong before I was born. Murder will be wrong after I am am gone. The reality that murder is wrong is not 
internal to who I am. It's something external to me. But it's, so my anger, my vengeance is going to be based on some other standard of morality that's external to me. God is qualitatively different. God's anger, God's vengeance, and God's wrath comes not because God, God is not judging behavior or circumstances against some standard of morality or some standard that's external to himself. It's, it's within him, right? Murder is, murder was not wrong before God existed. God didn't discover that murder is wrong and then just start enforcing that. Murder is wrong because of God. Because, because God doesn't like it, right? God is alive. God creates people and he breathes life into them. God loves life. God is pro-life. Jesus is alive. He rose from, from the dead. God loves it when his people live and thrive, and he hates it when his people murder each other. Murder is bad, not because of some, some standard of morality that's external to God. Murder is bad because uh, morality uh, is an expression of who God is and his very character. Right, so when humans get mad at one another, when they take revenge on one another, when they, when they, you know, uh, get upset, they're appealing to some standard outside of themselves, right? But when God gets mad, He is, uh, He is looking within to the, the the standard of morality that that is within His very nature. So there's a qualitative difference between human vengeance and divine vengeance, which is why Paul says in Romans chapter twelve, beloved. Never take revenge yourselves, right? Don't exhibit human vengeance, right? Uh, Never avenge yourselves, but rather leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. So God says divine vengeance is, is vastly different than human vengeance. Vengeance looks bad on humans and it looks good on God because God is perfect and God is holy and God is the arbiter of what is right and what is wrong. And so God says, when I visit judgment and vengeance on the city of Jerusalem, I'm not doing it arbitrarily. I'm not doing it randomly. I'm doing it in this long thought out pre-purposed plan to bring judgment against sin, right? When, when there are tragedies or natural disasters or a viral pandemic, it's not because God lost his temper and randomly decided that he had had enough. God is sovereign over those things. They happen according to his will that has been in place for all of eternity. His will flows out of his character, who he is and what he loves and what he hates, so that's, that's uh, the first eight verses of Lamentations chapter 2, is that suffering is real, and it exists, and it happens because God has visited his judgment on his people. In verse 9, uh, the narrative shifts a little bit. Uh, in, instead of looking at God and looking at God's judgment on his people, in verses 9 and following, the author looks at uh, the people themselves and the suffering that they are experiencing. Her, that's Jerusalem, her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more. The, the, the leaders of the city have been cast out of their palaces. They've been dispersed into foreign lands. They were mighty rulers and mighty kings. And now they're illegal aliens and beggars in foreign countries. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put sackcloth on. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground, right? So, so these, these elders, these wise, godly, like a judge, 
our Supreme Court justice today, right? These elders uh, who gave direction and guidance and counsel, they have been booted out. They had a position of prominence. They were respected. They were revered. Now they're sitting in the dust and they're broke and they have no food and no home and no place to go. And as the author looks at this and observes all this, verse 11, it moves him to respond with emotion. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns, right? I can't even control the emotions that I'm feeling. My bile is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of my, of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets and cry. Basically, he's saying, I'm vomiting. I'm vomiting. I'm, I'm so sad and I'm crying and weeping and mourning and lamenting so much that I'm projectile vomiting what's in, inside of me. That's, that's, the, that's the amount of distress that I'm in. That, that's how I feel when I look at the terrible suffering of innocent people, of, of babies, right? Babies starving to death. Verse 12, these babies cry to their mother, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city. Right? So, so a mother is holding her baby. She's starving to death. She has no nutrients that she's taking in for herself. She has no way to feed this baby. Parents are dying, starving to death in their mother's arms, in their parents' arms. They have no food to give them even if they wanted to. Verse 13, what can I say for you? What can I compare you to? What can I liken you to that I might comfort you? Your vast, your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? He's saying, I've, I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen suffering like this. I've never seen pain like this. Words cannot even express how horrible this situation is, right? This is the, the absolute worst thing that a person could could experience. And the author of Lamentations is saying, that's what I'm witnessing, that's what I'm observing, and that's what God has actively decided to bring about, is this worst possible scenario that I could, that I could think of. And among other reasons, here's one reason why he did it. Verse 14, your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. So part of the reason why this is happening in the city of Jerusalem, uh, part of the reason is, is sin and faithlessness of the people of God, right? God's, God's people are sinning against him. They're rebelling against him. But you can trace that back. You can kind of reverse engineer that back and arrive at the feet of the leaders, the prophets who were called by God and commissioned by God to declare God's word to his people. These are the men who had abdicated their responsibility. They had abandoned their post. Their, their job was to warn people, you're sinning against God. You're evoking the anger of God. Stop doing what you're doing lest you experience God's terrible judgment. And they stopped saying that, probably because they wanted money, probably because they wanted people to like them. So they started saying things like, God loves you. Everything is fine. Keep doing what you're doing. Don't worry about changing. Don't worry about repenting. Don't worry about conforming to the will of God. God will conform to you. And people love that. And so they, they, they would, would support their ministries in that respect. And God says, the, your, your prophets, your religious leaders failed in their responsibilities to warn you and to call you back to repentance from your, your sin. The, the most important part of your car not a big car, not a big car guy. But what I do know from experience is that some a very important part of your car are all those bulbs on the dashboard, the warning lights on the dashboard, right? That tell you that something is is broken, 
right? They're, they're, not, they're, not, ter- they're not terribly expensive. If, if, if the only thing that's wrong with your car is a bulb in the dashboard is broken, then you just get it for $2 at AutoZone, replace it, and you're on your way. But it has a critical role, right? Because if something's broken, if something's about to blow up, if there's metal grinding on metal in the engine of your car, if that light bulb, if that light bulb works, then you just stop. You pull over, you get towed to a, to a mechanic, you get charged 300 bucks to fix whatever the problem was, and you're on your way. If that bulb doesn't work, you keep right on driving, having no idea that you're actually doing irrevocable damage to your car. Maybe your engine blows up, right? Your car breaks down for good. So instead of a $300 repair, now you're just out $10,000 because your car doesn't work. You, you have to, your car's totaled. Or, or maybe it happens when you're, dr- you're driving 70 miles an hour on the interstate and all of a sudden you're skidding out of control and you're hoping that you can come safely to a stop. Like the, the warning light on your dashboard is small, but it has a critical job. Tell me if there's a problem so that I can fix it before it kills me. And that's, that is the responsibility of the religious leaders in the city of Jerusalem. Tell my people when they are sinning against me Call them to repentance, and if you fail, they're going to die, right? And this is in a very real sense, uh, this, this is in a very real sense our responsibility to one another, particularly leaders, right? Elders in, in, the, in the local church have a special responsibility for people under their care, right? If, if God's people sin and experience judgment, ultimately, right, the final the final onus of of accountability is on that person, right? It's on a person. God will hold them accountable for their sin. But if you're an elder in a church, in a very real sense, you are accountable for how you did or did not warn God's people against sin and lead them out of it into God's will. Not just elders, though. Anyone that has any modicum of spiritual responsibility, spiritual leadership over others, this verse is exactly for them, right? Parents who have kids that they're responsible for caring for their souls. Spouses who are living together and have responsibilities to one another, to encourage one another, right? Friends and fellow church members who have responsibilities to one another to encourage and to confront and to help other people walk with Jesus. If, if someone that you know, whether it's your kid, spouse, friend, uh, you know, member of your church, right? If, if, they, if their life is upended by sin or folly and you knew about it and you never spoke with them about it and you never tried to help, Ultimately, the the responsibility is on them because it's their sin. They will answer to God individually for what they did individually. But in a very real sense, God will hold you accountable for how and, and if you tried to press in, tried to help them, tried to encourage them, tried to warn them, tried to serve them. So the author of Lamentations is saying, uh, God's judgment comes on his people. It results in terrible suffering, ultimately because of their sin, but largely because of the failure of their leaders to lead well. In verse 15, we read, all who pass along the way, clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth, right? The city of Jerusalem was once this like pinnacle of all create. It was, it was this magnificent, beautiful city that was the crown jewel of God's chosen nation of Israel. And now it's gone from the highest of heights to the deepest of depths. People are laughing at it, scorning it, mocking it as they walk by. Verse 16, the 
enemies of Jerusalem are gloating and laughing at them and celebrating at their downfall. They're saying things like, where's, where's your God now, Jerusalem? Right? I thought your God was so big and strong. We came in. We, I guess we're stronger than your God. We took over your city. We went right into your God's temple. We took all of his gold and silver and we're eating and drinking with it now. Right? Where's your God now? Verse 18, the people are crying and mourning at these terrible circumstances. And then in verse 19, the author basically says, yeah, you, you should be crying. Like You better cry, right? Cry out to God because God has destroyed you. God has left you all alone. You are suffering more than anyone ever has. And your only hope is to cry out to God for mercy. That is your only hope in this life or the next. Which, incidentally, is exactly what we see in the last three verses of the chapter. So, so chapter, uh, verses 1 through 8, we look at the judgment of God coming from the sovereign hand of God. Verses 9 through 19, we look at the suffering of God's people as they are uh, you know, just devastated and reeling in response to the judgment of God. And then verses 20 through 22 is a prayer calling out to God, asking God for mercy in the midst of this devastating circumstances. Look, O Lord, and see. With whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of life? God, don't you see what's happening here? Are you aware? Are you even looking? Do you even know? There are mothers who are forced to eat their, like their children die in their arms from starvation. And now they're left with a choice. Do I uh, eat the dead remains of this child or do I starve to death myself? Verse 21, old people, young people, men, women, every single person, God has slaughtered everyone without pity. Verse 22, you have summoned as if to a festival day, my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped, no one survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. So God, God is, God, it's like when you call up your friends and, hey, let's go to a concert together. Let's, uh, let's go to the park. Let's go, to, let's go out to eat. And people from far and wide respond to your text messages to come and meet together and hang out and have fun. The author says God did that same thing to get all of these people in one spot so that he could destroy them. So he's calling out to God, why have you done this? Are you not aware of how bad we're suffering? Look at what has happened. Look at where we are. Look at where we were. So that's, that's the long and short of Lamentations chapter 2, right? Verses 1 through 8, God has destroyed us with his terrible judgment. Verses 9 through 19, we are reeling and staggering and suffering under God's terrible judgment. And verses 20 to 22, God, please see us. Please hear us. Please draw near to us. Please save us and be gracious to us. And the whole, the whole idea is, is this. Life is marked by suffering. To live as a person in this world is to suffer. It's marked by difficulty and hardship. And in the midst of it, God is calling us to two crucial responses. On the one hand, honesty, brutal honesty about suffering and what it is and the fact that we are experiencing it. And two, trust, ruthless trust 
in the Word of God and the character of God and the love of God and the heart of God, even in the midst of the worst of suffering. Right? So, so, so on, the, the author of Lamentations 2 is calling us to honesty. Look around, just like the author does. Acknowledge hardship. Acknowledge suffering. Don't suppress it. Don't hide it. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't pretend like it's not really there. Be honest with what you're experiencing. Be honest with your emotions. God, I'm sad. God, I'm confused. God, I don't know why you're doing this. I'm upset. I'm numb. I'm scared. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm upset that I can't gather with my fellow church members and sing with them and pray with them and be encouraged by them. I'm upset that I can't go to work and earn and provide for my family. I'm upset, I'm upset because this pandemic is, is affecting my family or those people that I, that I love. Or I'm upset because I'm suffering in some way that's, that has nothing to do with the, the pandemic that we're experiencing. One way or the other. Uh, if you're suffering, Lamentations 2 is calling us to acknowledge it. Be brutally honest with God about who you are and what you are experiencing. And then cry out to him. Cry out to God and, and trust him. Trust him with all your heart. Trust that he hears your prayers. Trust that your suffering is happening for a reason. Trust that God is doing something through your suffering for his glory and for your good. Right? Trust in the character of God. Trust in the word of God. Trust in the person of God. Trust in Jesus. Trust that he died for you to save you from your sin, to save you from an eternity in hell where you would be separated from the love of God. And then uh, if, if you can trust that God is able to save you from your sin and that God is able to save you from hell through the person and work of Jesus, if you can trust God with that, then you can also trust that God is able to Take care of you, even as you suffer here in this life. Romans chapter 8 says that God did not spare his own son, but rather he gave him up for us all. Now, with that in view, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Paul is saying, if God can be trusted with your soul, if God can be trusted with your eternity, then God can be trusted with your life. God can be trusted with your circumstances. So you can look at them, you can be honest, you can be brutally honest with them, with God about them. And then you can trust God. You can, you can have a ruthless trust in who God is and in the character of God and in the goodness of God, knowing that he will take care of you even in the midst of the worst suffering that you've ever experienced. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we recognize that you are sovereign. That, that you are in absolute control of everything around us, that, that every, you're in control of everything that happens to us. When we suffer, we acknowledge that you are the one that's in charge. You are the king. You can still be trusted. And Lord, in view of your sovereignty, we pray for mercy. We ask you to be gracious to us. We ask you to treat us better than we deserve to be treated. We ask you to comfort us and draw near to us in this season as this pandemic runs its course. We ask you to bring us back soon to a place where we can gather together and worship you and encourage one another. 
Lord, we confess our sin and our fears and our doubts to you, and we actively look to you and trust in you even in the midst of them. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.